coming to you live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Zane Asher sitting in for Julia Chatterley. And here is what you need to know. Violence escalating. Hong Kong protests leave two people in critical condition and ready to run. Saudi Aramco releases more details ahead of its highly anticipated IPO and let the shipping begin. Alabama breaks its singles day record with more than $30 billion in sales. It's Monday, my friends, and this is First Move. This is CNN Breaking News. All right, first we have breaking news to bring you from Hong Kong. A shocking surge of violence has led to a 21-year-old being shot by police while a man who confronted protesters was doused in gasoline and set on fire. Office workers were sent home early as protesters gathered in Hong Kong's central district, rushing for trains amid shouts of tear gas, tear gas. Video of the shooting by police was shared online and we want to warn you it is extremely graphic. An officer is seen grappling with a protester when another approaches and the officer raises his gun and then shoots the protester at close range. The victim is said to be in critical condition in hospital. Ivan Watson joins us live now from Hong Kong. So Ivan, just set the scene for us there. What are Hong Kong police saying? How are they responding to accusations of excessive violence? Well, they're defending the actions of the police. They're saying that uh, in the case of the shooting, Zane, that the officer was firing in self-defense. Meanwhile, here in the Mong Kok neighborhood, we have another face-off. Demonstrators setting up barricades. And several hundred meters down this road here, in normally what would be a busy commercial district, riot police who have been firing tear gas down this direction as the Demonstrators have been setting fires and committing acts of vandalism around here. In one of the cases that the police had to address today, it involved a man on a motorcycle, a police officer swerving wildly, smashing into demonstrators. The police say in that police officer's case, they have suspended that officer from frontline duty and they're investigating the incident. To the best of our knowledge, that's the first time in more than five months that a police officer has been suspended in this cycle of violence that is basically a low-level urban conflict at this stage. And there are no signs coming from the city authorities of any de-escalation. The chief executive, Carrie Lam, fresh from being endorsed face-to-face -face with the Chinese President Xi Jinping, has basically said it's my road or the high road, and the demonstrators have grown more violent and more radicalized as this process has gone on. It feels like, on the part of the law enforcement and on the part of radical protesters like this, it's a race to the bottom. Zane. So, Ivan, just recap for our audience what the protesters are demanding at this point. We know that the extradition bill, which was hugely controversial and one of their key demands, was actually withdrawn. What more do the protesters want from Hong Kong authorities at this point? Well, they have a list of five demands, everything from universal suffrage to the release of all the protesters that have been detained. Here you can see some of the fires in the distance that they lit. 
But there are a lot of calls for basically anarchy and revolution at this stage. One of the slogans is, if we burn, you burn with us. And the entire city is suffering from this, Zane. It's gone into an economic recession, and the stock market, the Hang Seng Index, fell two, two and a half points today, the, the biggest drop in more than three months. Every business person you talk to in the city, services, hotels, retail, tourism industry, they're all hurting very badly right now. And once again, there is no sign of any let up anytime soon. The authorities have arrested more than 3,000 people. There's a growing number of casualties in hospital on the side of the police, on the side of young people like this who are out day after day. They called for a general strike on Monday, and they're calling for another strike to continue on Tuesday, though we did not see signs of large numbers of laborers around the city joining into that strike. Zane? And Ivan, if, if authorities don't yield to the protesters' demands, what happens next? Obviously, Carrie Lam has come out and said, listen, violence isn't going to change things, but surely at some point, something has to give. Yeah, but this has been going on for more than five months. And the message that I think we've gotten from Beijing, after all, this is a part of China, from the Hong Kong authorities, is they'll just keep going with this low-level urban war of attrition. Um, and this is what you see uh, as a result of it. Four or five months ago, these were peaceful protests, massive ones, with one, two million people in the streets calling for a controversial, controversial piece of legislation. Hang on. Controversial piece of legislation to be removed. And in the months since then, many things have deteriorated. And, and rule of law, frankly, ha has suffered dramatically. Uh, you see uh, vandalism taking place uh, on a weekly basis. You see actions on the part of the security forces, which Amnesty International today uh, denounced as uh, signs of police out of control uh, taking place. It, it really is uh, completely counterintuitive to a city that was once known for its record of law and order, of safety and efficiency. Instead, scenes like this have become very much the norm here. All right, Ivan Watson, thank you so much for that powerful reporting. Thank you. As Ivan just mentioned there, Hong Kong stocks fell sharply this session amid the escalating violence. The Hang Seng actually fell uh, just a little more than 2.5%, its biggest one-day drop since August here in the U.S. Futures are pointing to a lower open for stocks across the board. All major averages are set to fall from record highs that they hit on Friday. The S&P 500 is coming off of its fifth straight week of gains despite new uncertainties over the U.S.-China trade negotiations. President Trump said on Friday he has not agreed to roll back tariffs on China as Beijing demanded. The president could have more to say on tariffs on Tuesday when he delivers a speech at the Economic Club of New York. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell testifies before Congress on the state of the economy on Wednesday and Thursday. Trading volume may be a bit lighter than usual day. Today, it is uh, Veterans Day in the United States and bond markets are closed. All right, let's get straight to 
the drivers for you uh, with just hours still to go alibaba's 2019 singles day has already been a record-breaking success sales at the chinese e-commerce giant blew past last year's 31 billion dollars in the first 16 hours david culver joins us live now from the company's headquarters uh so david another record-breaking day for uh, alibaba what have been some of their strategies to boost sales this year on Singles Day? Zane, this has been huge. As you mentioned, this is a new record already. They're at 35 billion, and they're expecting that to increase because there's still a few more hours. Now, this is one of the many high-tech installations they've got out here, but let me step out here. To your point and your question about how they've been able to kind of diversify and to increase these sales year after year, it's something I asked the chief marketing officer about when I sat down with him, and he said a lot of it has focused on really trying to create a more diverse consumer base and, and really tapping into different markets within mainland China. That's been a, a huge focus of theirs, making those who are perhaps in rural areas even get more access to some of the high-tech technology that allows them to make purchases and do e-commerce. But for something that's so high-tech, we're looking at the top three items that were purchased, pretty basic things. Number one, pants, trousers. Number two, a dress. Number three, hoodies. So that's what folks seem to be flocking to. Nonetheless, they're doing it in massive numbers. This is also not just a China event. As it was pointed out, this is a global event and, and becoming increasingly so. So that's another focus for theirs. They have 78 countries that are offering up brands that have been sold throughout the day here and are continuing to do so. Also, we can't forget, you know, despite how fun the environment looks, the serious uh, climate that we're in when it comes to the economy in particular. We've been talking about the U.S. trade war. We've been talking about China's slow in GDP, the slowdown that has happened uh, over the past two quarters reported. And it's really near uh, the all-time low in three decades. So in the midst of that, people are looking at this as a real indicator. You've got some 500 million users, Zane, who have been logging on today and making those purchases. They're going to be looking at that. Analysts in particular say, OK, what is the, the everyday Chinese citizen dealing with as far as the money is concerned? And, and are they comfortable enough making that spending. So this is going to be something that's going to suggest where things are really on the front lines. And, and how have Alibaba's sales compared to uh, JD and Pinduoduo, some of its other competitors? Yeah, when you look at the market, Zane, as, as you mentioned, those other uh, e-commerce sites are big, but Alibaba has the huge chunk. And really, while Singles Day is being used by several different e-commerce sites and different retailers as well, Alibaba is the one that kind of turned it into the extravaganza that it's become. I mean, they market this as, as a festival, so they no longer even consider this to be a campaign, a promotional campaign. They, they feel like it's just engaged the Chinese populace to a point that it's become so massive. But, but they are certainly seeing the major chunk here, and then that's expected to increase uh, going forward. But it's also worth noting, they position themselves as an e-commerce site. So they're not, in their minds, retailers, because they're simply connecting the retailers with the consumers. And it's something they're hoping to do in many different ways and allowing retailers even to brand themselves on Alibaba's many platforms. All right, David Culver, live for us there. Thank you so much.
All right, a major milestone has been passed for Saudi Aramco, the oil giant releasing fresh details for what could be the largest IPO uh, in history. It's still not saying exactly how much of the company is going on the block. John Defterios is live for us in Abu Dhabi. So, John, just walk us through what was in the perspective, prospectus excuse me, for Saudi Aramco. What are their plans for their IPO? What's well, interesting, Zay, in terms of context, uh, Aramco is the talk of the town here in Abu Dhabi at a huge oil and gas conference, but the major players from Aramco are not here. The CEO, the chairman, or the Minister of Energy, all hands on deck to make sure this goes smoothly. We do know now, though, the details are coming out uh, that retail investors will get up to a half a percent uh, to make their choice. And this is uh, something of national pride there. It's going viral on social media uh, back in Riyadh and in Jeddah and in the eastern province where Aramco is. They have between November 17th and November 28th to make their choice here. Institutional investors up until December 4th. On the opening session here at Adapak in Abu Dhabi, I asked the former Secretary of State of the United States, Condoleezza Rice, who knows Saudi Arabia very well, uh, is this a sign of transparency going forward for the kingdom and a company that was secretive for decades? Here's our answer. And speaking uh, with uh, the Saudi leaders, uh, as I've done over the last uh, several years as they prepared for this, uh, they understand the importance of transparency. They understand the importance of standards that are indeed global standards. Uh, the UAE has led in many ways in the Middle East in doing this. And I think this can only be a good thing for uh, global markets. It can only be a good thing for energy supply. Um, and I must say that as we look to uh, how to think about energy mix, because that really is going to be the question, how can you get economic growth, energy mix, and environmental sustainability all together? Having um, Saudi Aramco as a part of that conversation, I think, is going to be very important. Condoleezza Rice, the former Secretary of State. Also, what many people don't talk about, Zane, is that they're fighting the forces of Wall Street. Uh, the market cap of uh, oil and gas companies in the last five years as part of the S&P 500 has been cut in half because many people don't want to hold these big oil giants anymore. At the same time, though, I think the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia is suggesting they need to get it done. He originally brought up the idea three years ago in 2016. So even if it's smaller than expected, expected to go out by the end of 19, even if it's less than 2%, they're still targeting a higher valuation. And I think they'd like to beat Alibaba and that revenue raising of $25 billion. Back to you. All right. John Defterios, life for us there. Thank you so much. Okay, so these are the stories making headlines around the world right now. Former Bolivian President Evo Morales is calling on opposition leaders to, quote, pacify Bolivia after a wave of protests led him to resign on Sunday. Mr. Morales has blamed what he calls a coup attack for encouraging the violent protest. Patrick Upman joins us live now. So, Patrick, Evo Morales is calling this a coup. His opponents are saying... Good riddance to a man who they believe had zero respect for uh, democracy. I mean, just, just walk us through what exactly is going to happen next. And it's still a very unstable situation in Bolivia. Evo Morales tweeting just a little while ago that his home in Cochabamba, which is uh, really the, the stronghold uh, for his support, was sacked overnight. And there's actually videos of people walking around uh, in uh, his house that has been uh, clearly... Uh, broken into. So uh, again, just one stunning development after another. This has been brewing for weeks now, ever since uh, the opposition in Bolivia accused Evo Morales 
of stealing the election, of rigging the vote that would allow him to have a fourth term. And yesterday, uh, a report from the Organization of American States laid out uh, in very clear detail that there was uh, some serious voting irregularities and that somebody, uh, most likely supporters of Evo, Evo Morales, uh, may have uh, tried to rig the election so he would win on the uh, the first go-around, which would have prevented him from having a runoff. Uh, but uh, it has completely backfired. Uh, protests over the last several weeks got more and more violent. And then over the weekend, we started seeing police join in with the protesters. And then by Sunday, when the military said uh, not only would they not uh, go out and uh, quell the protests, but that it was time for Evo Morales to leave. That was really uh, the, the clearest sign yet that his uh, days were numbered. And by uh, yesterday afternoon, he had, in fact, resigned. We do not know who was in charge of the country at this moment because official after official were next to the line of succession have also resigned. Clearly, it's a priority to get somebody in as the role of acting president because the country at this point does not seem to have one, and to figure out when uh, new elections will be held, because uh, as one of his last acts of president, uh, Evo Morales, ordered that it would be new elections, possibly hoping that would uh, quiet down these protests. It did not work. Uh, he was forced out, and he says he will not seek uh, asylum abroad, that he's staying in Bolivia, but he also says uh, that he is fearful that he could be arrested. Same. So what will the, the power vacuum uh, mean for peace and security in the country? Well, the, it's still uh, a situation that, that could uh, that could go bad at any moment because Evo Morales was popular over over the years. He did help uh, the impoverished in his country more than anybody ever had before. He's the first uh, president from the uh, from uh, the indigenous community, which is uh, a sizable part of the of the country. So he has his support, and his supporters must be seething right now. Certainly, other leaders in the region, in Cuba and Venezuela. Uh, here in Mexico, uh, are uh, we're, we're trying to prop him up at the end. So it's a divided continent. It's a divided country. And uh, he said he stepped down to avoid further bloodshed. We'll just have to see if by leaving power he was able to accomplish that. Uh, because on one side you have the opposition saying that an election was stolen, the democracy was not respected. And, and then uh, on, on the other side, uh, you have people that say that he was forced out by the military and uh, that uh, the country is, is kind of tottering right now. The democracy there is, uh, in, is in real danger. And until we get in civilian leadership uh, back uh, in power there and new elections are called, uh, it's really anyone's guess how this is going to play out. All right, Patrick Ottman, live for us. Thank you so much. In the UK, Brexit Party leader Nigel Farage has just given a major boost to Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Farage saying his party will not contest 317 seats held by Mr Johnson's Conservative Party in the upcoming general election. In southeastern Australia, firefighters are battling more than 70 bushfires in New South Wales alone. A seven-day state of emergency has been declared and the fire service issued a catastrophic threat warning for the greater Sydney area as the flames march closer. Officials say at least three people have died and more than 100 homes have been destroyed. All right, still to come here on First Move, can a credit card be sexist? U.S. regulators aren't the only ones looking into Apple Card, the Apple Card. Even Apple's co-founder says that he thinks that something is very, very wrong. And stacks of snacks. Mondelez CEO tells us appetites and profits are on the rise. That's next.
Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are on track for a week open on this Veterans Day here in the United States. Uh, Dow futures pointing to a lower open, down already about 110 points or so. Stock market set to open about eight minutes from now. It is Veterans Day here in the U.S. Stocks are set to pull back from the repeated record highs that they set last week. Traders note that U.S. stocks are already at their richest valuations in almost two years on the hopes that the global economy will turn a quarter if trade tensions fade. Dryden Pence joins us live now. He is the chief investment officer at Pence Wealth Management. He joins us live. So Dryden, thank you so much for being with us on this Veterans Day. Certainly an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much for your service. So just walk us through the journey that stocks have been on from last week to this week. Obviously, last week we saw multiple record highs. This week seems like we're having a, a bit of a lower open already on this Monday. Well, it's been the pattern over the last several series times. We hit these record highs, and then the, that everybody kind of takes a breather, takes a look at it, and, and you begin to see the uh, stocks come back. And it's not uncommon over the last several cycles for us to see uh, even as much as a 5 to 10% pullback after a record high, and then it you know, straightens out and then recovers thereafter. So, uh, you know, pulling back from here is not necessarily unexpected, but a lot of those things that have created some headline are beginning to abate. What would you say were the major headwinds, though, on the horizon, just in terms of risk to the market uh, in the short term? Sure. Well, you know, we did have the Fed as a headwind. That's kind of off the table. We had Brexit as a headwind. That's beginning to abate some. And then we have the China trade tensions, which uh, it kind of is a day to day. One day you hear it's going to be fine. The next day it's not. Then you have a schedule. So we have those things. And then later on this month, you still have a couple of issues. Uh, you do have a Fed meeting come up in December. But then in mid-November, we're going to have uh, the tariff situation that, that the president's going to have to make some decisions about on auto tariffs. So those are some things that could give rise to headline activity that could create one of these bumps in the road or stimulate some of this volatility that we've uh, typically seen after a, after a recent high. And so those are the things to watch out more. More headline-driven than, than actual uh, economy-driven. Uh, we're beginning to see some of these things level out, although the global economy still looks like it's slowing a bit. In terms of uh, another interest rate cut, I mean, almost everybody believes that probably interest rates will stay the same in December. But when do you anticipate the next cut will be next year? I, I actually think that, that next year being a Fed governor is going to be a fairly boring job. Uh, I think that they, they do have it about right. They, they certainly raised twice uh, last year. Uh, they shouldn't have. Uh, they've had to pull those out. Now they've pulled uh, one, uh, a third one out to kind of cover this trade tension that we have. And I think the Fed uh, says they feel like they've got it about right, barring any major changes in the economy. economy. And I, I kind of take them at their word on that. I think we're probably level for a while. I mean, the, the thing is, is expectations have changed. Feds raise interest rates but, uh, to change human behavior. And we found that, that a 4% uh, rate on a mortgage is about where human behavior changes, uh, about the rates where they are right now, where people continue to buy things, but they don't get spooked from too high of interest rates. And that, th that is leveled off. I mean, the Fed has found the right level at this point uh, where behavior matches up and you don't have these major changes or a reduction uh, in demand. So 
consumers change their behavior at a much lower interest rate now than they did 20 years ago. I think the Fed got it wrong about that. Now they understand that that with half the population uh, below the age of 45, uh, I think that they've recognized that people's behavior changes at much lower interest rate, and I think they found they found their path, and it's right about here. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Dryden and Pence have to leave it there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Okay, so you are watching First Move. The market's open after this short break in just three minutes. bell has just rung here on this Monday, November 11th at the New York Stock Exchange. It is Veterans Day. You see uh, members of the military up on the podium there. As expected, though, we do have a lower start to the trading week here on Wall Street as all the major averages are pulling back from Friday's all-time closing highs. We are already down about 130 points on the Dow. Investors are clearly hoping to get some clarity on U.S.-China trade this week. President Trump is delivering a speech at the Economic Club here in New York uh, tomorrow. We must also decide by Wednesday whether to impose tariffs on European auto imports. European stocks are pulling back this third session, this third, this session as well. U.K. stocks are performing the worst. New numbers show the British economy avoiding recession in the third quarter. That said, economic growth was the weakest in a decade and looking at the global movers we are watching alibaba and jd.com both chinese online giants celebrating blockbuster sales for singles day it is the world's busiest biggest online shopping day worth more than black friday and cyber monday combined also shares of walgreens boots are on the rise reports say buyout firm kkr has actually approached the drugstore giant to discuss taking the company private if it happens, it could be one of the biggest ever leveraged buyouts. And Deutsche Bank stock uh, is down in Frankfurt. It's been meeting British financial regulators to explain why its internal systems are having problems processing high-value payments. A New York regulator is looking into allegations that the Goldman Sachs Apple card is sexist. The flurry of accusations of gender bias uh, in the card's algorithms erupted last week with one such criticism coming from Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. Let's bring in uh, Claire Sebastian, who joins us live now. So, uh, Claire, Steve Wozniak is basically saying that his wife was given a lower credit limit on the card, despite the fact that they share financial assets. Just, just walk us through how something like that could possibly happen without it being a clear case of sexism. Yeah, Zane, this has really escalated in the past few days. It didn't actually start with Steve Wozniak. It started with another tech entrepreneur uh, called uh, David Heinemeyer Hansen. He tweeted last Thursday. I think we can show you that tweet. The Apple Card is such a expletive, sexist program. My wife and I filed joint tax returns, live in a community property state, and have been married for a long time. Yet Apple's black box algorithm think I deserve 20 times the credit limit. She does no appeals work. So he goes on to say uh, after this now viral tweet uh, that, that he spoke to the Apple representative who implied it was the algorithm. They then upped his, uh, his wife's, wife's credit limit by way of consolation. He wasn't happy with that because he said it didn't get to the root of the problem. And meanwhile, as you say, Steve Wozniak, the Apple co-founder, chimed in. Let's have a look at his tweet. He said uh, in reply, the same thing happened to us. I got 10 times the credit limit. We have no separate bank or credit card accounts to any separate assets. Hard to get a, te- a human for a correction, though. It's big tech. 
in 2019. So damning comments there from the co-founder of Apple. Now, Apple have referred questions on this to Goldman Sachs, who are the credit card issuer. And Goldman Sachs, they put out a statement uh, late last night. Let's uh, have a look at that. They say, as with any other individual credit card, your application is evaluated independently. We look at an individual's income and an individual's creditworthiness, which includes factors like personal credit scores, how much debt you have, and how that debt has been managed. They say, crucially, based on these factors, it is possible for two family members to receive significantly different credit decisions. In all cases, we have not and will not make decisions based on factors like gender. But meanwhile, Zane, the New York Financial uh, Services Department has come in and said said they are investigating this. They uh, say that any discrimination by any financial product is banned by the law. So this is a very new product, the Apple Card. It only launched in August and already hitting uh, a fairly big PR problem, if not structural problem. So um, given that regulators are investigating, how much trouble could Goldman Sachs be in if it is determined that somehow the algorithm, obviously they're denying it, but the algorithm could be discriminating based on gender. Right. So, I mean, it's difficult to know exactly how much the the sanctions on this are. I mean, I've reached out to them to, to, to find out what they are. I think usually they do sanction every violation. So it could get potentially expensive. But of course, Goldman coming out and defending themselves, saying that we do not uh, discriminate on the basis uh, of gender. And and they are you know, heavily invested in this. Goldman has recently uh, started branching out into consumer finance. This is a big, high profile product for them, not to mention, of course, uh, for Apple, which is crucial for its business, that they really increase their services portion of it, of which Apple Pay is a big part. So both of these companies are going to be really looking to defend this. So a, a big problem for both businesses. Claire Sebastian, I for us there. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Up next here on First Move, Singles Day brings record sales for Alibaba as Chinese uh, consumers discount the trade war gloom. That's next. Alibaba's Singles Day has broken records and it's not even over yet. A couple more hours to go. The e-commerce giant smashed last year's $31 billion sales, record 16 hours into the day. The 24-hour shopping holiday ends in just over an hour. This year's Singles Day is good news for Alibaba, which is under pressure from China's slowing economy and the trade war with the United States. Joining me live now is Shasad Kazi, Managing Director at China Beige Book. Thank you so much for being with us. Bye, so, um, given that the Chinese consumer isn't necessarily as robust as it should be, how much of a surprise is uh, Alibaba's record-breaking results today? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a much of a surprise. Right? Alibaba's been doing quite phenomenal every year for Singles Day. Uh, we've seen record-breaking sales in the past, but I think Alibaba is not the Chinese economy. Mm-hmm. We need to pull back and look at the larger context. It's an outlier. Uh, it's absolutely an outlier. Um, you know, and it also has people from other countries buying up, so it's not just domestic Chinese consumption either. There's a lot of discounting that takes place. So how much of that shows up in the bottom line? All those are questions that we need to look at. Uh, but more importantly, importantly, all the data that's come out has consistently shown that uh, Chinese demand is, is, you know, sort of very modest, uh, even even tepid. Um, in the third quarter of this year, um, China Beige Book data that came out, you know, we saw overall within the economy, we saw some of the weakest numbers this year uh, that, that we've recorded. Um, all the official data that's been coming out in recent weeks has sort of continuously emphasized that the economy as a whole is actually weak. Uh, you know, PMIs are in contraction territory for half a year now. Uh, imports have been falling for about half a year. Exports are contracting at 
think four months in a row, something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. The latest inflation data that's come out, again, similarly shows factories are struggling, um, but even if you look at consumer prices, uh, they're quite modest. And just in terms of um, the effect of uh, the U.S. trade war with China on the Chinese economy, just every time, even with the, you know, here in the U.S., every time the markets sort of feel as though we are approaching a deal and things are moving on nicely, we get a tweet or a comment from the president that sets us back. Just yeah. a little bit. Walk us through that. Yeah, absolutely. Both sides. This is a negotiation, right? And, and one of the things we do in a negotiation naturally is uh, you posture a little bit. Uh, so every time both sides, um, you know, there's, there's a, we put on sort of this grand posture and say, no, we're not willing to concede. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's going to be a big market reaction. Also, the markets are really just looking for a deal, some kind of a deal. They mm -hmm. don't really. Uh, I think care what, what the deal actually really even entails to, to a large extent in terms of some of the outlying bigger structural issues. Um, right now, everybody's hoping and, and, and wishing that the December tariffs are gone. Mm -hmm. I think we know that for a fact, more or less. The Chinese have been told that there is going to be a punt on December tariffs. Mm -hmm. The big question is, of course, the September tariffs. Right. What happens with that? Uh, that's where there's a lot of uncertainty. Now, one thing that we've been able to communicate out uh, to our clients, et cetera, is, of course, that the September tariffs uh, you know, there is more or less consensus within the organization. The Hawks um, are fine with the September tariffs being rolled back. There's just one person standing in the middle of that, or in the way of that, and that would be the president himself, mm -hmm. who has not yet made that decision uh, on whether or not uh, he wants to roll back the September tariffs and give that into the Chinese. And then, just in terms of concessions that China is going to have to offer for its part in exchange for these tariffs being roll rolled back, I mean, how much? U.S. agricultural output are they going to have to buy, et cetera? Yeah, so now one interesting thing here is that um, the, the president himself, he's very much interested in the ag purchases, right? Uh, he wants to make sure that the farmers feel some kind of, are taken care of, they feel like they're taken care of. Um, he's also looking for LNG purchases and potentially having an energy deal with China. Mm -hmm. The larger concern is that this deal, the mini deal, the interim deal, should never be made to look like it, it is essentially American, the American side rolling back tariffs in exchange for ag purchases only. Mm -hmm. If that's the case, um, I think the president is going to have a lot of problems when he hits the election trail next year because mm -hmm. it's going to look like a, <clears throat> a very weaker uh, deal that he struck. Um, uh, so what? The, you know, what the Chinese side now is looking to do is potentially going back to the May draft, um, maybe making some IP concessions on top of that. There have been recently some talks of market access, et cetera, mm -hmm. intellectual prop, you know, protecting intellectual property and so forth. So those are some of the deal, so some of the things that are being worked out right now. So some say that you know, a trade deal has been more or less baked into the market at this point, but really the fact that it's going to be done in phases, the fact that we're getting a piecemeal trade deal, signals to a certain extent, at least to me, that there's always going to be room for one side to change their mind or pull back. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, first of all, we, if there was an assumption that there was going to be a deal uh, this month. Now, first of all, that's not, that's not in itself a, a, a sure shot thing in any event. Mm -hmm. And absolutely, I think this thing may very well play out till the last minute. I think one of the things that the president would like to do is hold back on some of the bigger concessions till he's in the room with President Xi Jinping himself. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he wants to make that make the final deal himself. I think he's going to get it. He wants to also get a big market splash out of it. I'm sure mm -hmm. he cares mm -hmm. about those things. Uh, so yes, there's going to be likely uncertainty um, uh, till till the very end, mm -hmm. uh, and, and markets are probably going to remain jittery till the two of them get in the same room. Now, of course, the question is, can they agree on enough things? Uh, beforehand to even get the two uh, men in the same room because uh, this thing needs to be big enough right, uh, right, to right. justify the presidents coming together. Right. right. Uh, Shazad Kazi, thank you so much. Thanks. Appreciate it.
As President Trump rejects reports that he's about to roll back tariffs on China, Bergman giant Siemens says the trade war is its single, single biggest problem. CEO Joe Kayser told John Defteris the world is watching and he hopes the two governments will find a way out. Take a listen. I think the single biggest issue we have is still the ongoing trade war between China and the United States. Now everybody is looking. Because if the number one and the number two in the world are in this array, people wait and wonder what the hell is going on. So that could actually, you know, kick off a quite a big rally because people have not been investing. They all been on the sideline till the dust was settling. So I'm actually reasonably optimistic that this could actually in the second half of twenty twenty could actually be quite adaptive. Well, it's interesting you say that. Did the Trump administration make a big miscalculation with a country that has $3 trillion of reserves and still growing five and a half, six percent 6%? They're not rushing to a deal. Well, um, let me put it this way. 5.5-6% in China is, is, would be looking great for Europe, but it's not looking great for China. And we have to say that there's got to be an understanding on how trade is going to happen in the future. Why am I saying that? Well, look, if you all, we look at uh, energy here, oil and gas 4.0, we look at the Internet of Things, all that great stuff, which technology is actually, you know, helping us to achieve. And all the three industrial revolutions have brought out people out of poverty, have been making a better world. Now we are at 4.0, fourth industrial revolution, which is Internet of Things. Everything is connected. The whole world is supposed to be connected. So how can it be all connected? You know, if people go back into nationalism and protectionism. Is that what you're banking on? You think they can have a major breakthrough? I do think at the end of the day, they will find a way to cooperate. They are the number one and number two in the, the world. So everybody is watching. So I'm sure they're going to get something done. In Davos two years ago, you sat next to President Trump uh, at the dinner. Uh, how much of a trouble is it, this impeachment hearing, do you think, on sentiment in the United States and what happens to him in your view? Well, look, that's a matter of the American people. You know, they need to decide on how they want to design their leadership. We work with every government which is being elected and which is in charge. Some are a bit more uh, challenging, some are a bit less, but we work with everybody and uh, so we'll take it from there. All right, coming up, Adidas powers off its robots in Germany and the U.S. is saying it's time for high-tech manufacturing in Asia. That's next. All right, welcome back, everybody. Here is today's boardroom brief. Bernard Tyson, the CEO of Kaiser Permanente, has died at age 60, the first black CEO of one of the U.S.'s largest non-profit health plans. Tyson was a champion for accessible health care, racial justice, and diversity in the workplace as well. The CEO of Uber has walked back comments he made describing the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi as a mistake by the Saudi government. Dara Khorashawi likened the murder to an accident involving one of Uber's self-driving cars, which killed a pedestrian last year. I think that government uh, said that they made a mistake. Well, they um, made a mistake and somebody's well, dead. Listen, it's, it's, it, it's a serious mistake. We've made mistakes too, right, with self-driving uh, and we stop driving and we're recovering from that mistake. So I think that people make mistakes. It doesn't mean that they can never be forgiven. I think they've taken it seriously. 
And the, CIA my standpoint- the CIA didn't suggest that they made a mistake and that it was an oversight. Like with self-driving, that was a, basically a bad sensor, correct? This yes. was, the CIA yeah. suggested that the crown prince had a role in ordering an assassination. It's a different thing. You guys didn't intentionally didn't, run somebody over. I didn't read that part of the CIA report. You're, you're obviously deeper in it. But I think from a Saudi perspective, they're just like any other shareholder, right? It's we, now we're a public company. Anyone can invest in our company if they choose to do so. And they're a big investor, just like you could be a big investor as well. The Saudi fund is Uber's fifth largest shareholder. The Uber CEO later emailed Axios to say, I said something in the moment that I do not believe. When it comes to Jamal Khashoggi, his murder was reprehensible and should not be forgotten or excused. A Chinese firm will buy British Steel in a deal estimated to be worth £90 billion. British Steel has been in compulsory liquidation since May. The deal with Jingai Group could protect thousands of British jobs and it comes as the UK prepares for a general election. Adidas says it will close two high-tech sports shoe factories in Germany and the US. Its first plant using largely robotic production has only been opened for three years. The company says it makes more sense for its Asian suppliers to use the technology in their factories. Small bites, big profits. The global food conglomerate Mondelez is raising its 2019 sales forecast amid increased demand for its snacks, especially in emerging markets. Mondelez CEO Dick Van Der Put sat down with Alison Kosick to talk about global snacking trends and the uncertainty surrounding Brexit and trade. First of all, snacking is growing. Uh, today, uh, of the adults in the world, most of them now eat more snacks than they eat full meals. And so that's an important uh, consideration. There's a number of interesting findings. Women uh, snack more than men. Uh, millennials and Generation Z snack a lot more than the older generations. People in developing countries snack more. So snacking is on the rise and it's really a big trend. The second big finding is that our relationship to food is changing. Um, food, taken 30 years ago, was about nutrition, was about hunger. Now it's, it, the relationship to health is becoming clearer and clearer for every consumer and they take that into consideration if they eat. But it's also about emotional, mental wellness. It's about taking a break, about relaxing, re-energizing. And the last one, which I think we've seen uh, uh, recently, is, is about your identity. It's who you are. What you eat is, is a representation of who you are. If you're a parent, what you give your kids as snacks is, is very important. And that, that leads me to the third big consideration, which snacking is a bit more than just eating. It's, it's about reconnecting to your roots. How much of a challenge is it for you and how maybe are you thinking about expanding Mondelez's um, product line knowing that many consumers want the fresh over what's in the box or the bag? Yes, uh, obviously we are studying that and we have uh, projects to go into into that direction. I would say packaged snacks are growing quite a lot too because there's the portability, there's the freshness, but uh, yeah, uh, fresh snacking is, is a clear trend also. You've really taken this global view about snacking and realizing that snacking is kind of three-dimensional, isn't it? And that there are regional tastes. How yeah. has Mondelez used that knowledge? Well, we, we adapt our product range to, to the different regions of the world. We, we have an assortment of brands, global brands, Oreo, Milka, Cadbury. And we have local brands, uh, Cote d'Or would be in Belgium or uh, Lue in France. 
And um, as we connect to the local consumers, we understand better what they like, what they don't like, which brands do they prefer. So we use that information and we also use um, the flavors. Uh, for instance, the Oreo flavors in China are completely different from Oreo flavors in the U.S. because the China's palate is completely different. And let's talk tariffs for a minute. How have trade tariffs impacted your business? And despite you know signs of these trade tensions ramping down, are you still factoring in higher costs because of these tariffs? In our case, um, we're largely local producers in the big countries around the world. So tariffs not necessarily affect us in a big way, but uh, in January, where our head was largely around Brexit. And if Brexit would come and the UK government was thinking about imposing tariffs, some of what we sell in the UK is imported from Europe. So that was what was going through our head. In the meantime, it does look like they are not really planning for that. And so tariffs for us, largely because we have local factories around the world, uh, don't affect us that much. So with Brexit kind of in a holding pattern, are you still kind of building additional inventory, stockpiling and packaging uh, packaging and ingredients? Are you yes. still doing that? It's the third time we're going to do it now for the pot potential January Brexit date, yes, yes. So how does that affect your business, though, to continue in this uncertain pattern? Well, each time... Brexit might be coming and the borders might become a problem since we ship from the mainland, not everything, but part of what we sell in the UK. In advance, we, sh we ship more products in the UK, more raw materials in the UK. We, we contract more trucks, so that's an extra cost for us. And then as Brexit doesn't come, we ease that out again. Then there was a second period of Brexit, so we do that again. Now it's January, so we'll do it again in December and January. So it's an extra cost to our business. It's an extra complexity. It, it makes our people uh, walk away from the day-to-day -day job, having to do special things. So it's, it's a big disruption to our business. All right, and one quick note. British Steel, that, that deal is actually worth an estimated £90 million pounds not billion, as we said earlier. Just a quick correction for you. All right, that's it for the show. I'm Zane Asher. Connect the World starts after this short break. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.